So this morning I'm going to move on to what are known as the Four Noble Truths, or at least begin to explore that. But um, first let's try to look at this in the context of the the cultivation of the foundations of mindfulness. And again, just following the Satipatthana Sutta, we start with the body, or the breath, the body, feelings, mind states. They're the first three. And then we have the fourth uh, foundation of mindfulness, or grounding, or application of mindfulness, which concerns what are called the Dhammas. And I'm suggesting that the Dhammas um, are here referring to uh, the basic uh, clusters of ideas that provide a kind of framework for dealing with the totality of our experience at any given moment, rather than specifically focusing on the breath or the body or the feelings, or mental states. Of course, they include that, but the emphasis seems at this point in the development of the uh, sutta to move into how we work with the the total complexity of experience. It starts, the first idea cluster are the five hindrances, which we looked at, through the figure of Mara. The second idea cluster are the five bundles or aggregates that we looked at yesterday. The third idea cluster are the six sense bases, which again might sound a bit repetitive. This is obviously mainly to do with the body, as well, of course, the mental sense and what those senses um, mediate in other words, forms and smells and sounds and tastes and um, tactile sensations and also mental content, ideas and emotions and so forth as well. Then we move on to the next idea cluster, which is of the seven elements of awakening, which we'll look at briefly today. And then the final idea cluster is that of the Four Noble Truths. Now, again, I think characteristic of of many of these uh, suttas, the sequence in which these points are arranged is not arbitrary, but rather traces um, a kind of evolution or development. So we left off yesterday by mindfulness of the five bundles. And let's just sketch that again. But the five bundles, the five khandhas, seem to me to be um, one of the many ways in which the Buddha sketches um, what we might in English call experience, experience in its widest possible sense. Not just experience of what's going on in here as a subjective experience, but the experience of the total moment that's occurring, which is just as much to do with the the sounds and smells and tastes and touches as it has to do with our feelings and perceptions and inclinations and awareness. And I do think it's significant that um, quite characteristically within these um, reflections, uh, the Buddha does not tend to start by talking about the inner and the outer, the subjective and the objective, um, the mind and the non-mind, or the body or the world, but has a rather more inclusive way of addressing what in modern philosophical language would be called uh, phenomenological experience. In other words, 
before we start making conceptual divisions between a subject and an object, there is a total field of experience. And as we now know through the help of, of, of uh, neuroscience and so on, the very um, assumption we have that there are objects out there and there are, ex- and there are minds or thoughts or emotions in here really begins to break down. Take, for example, the experience of color. Color um, being obviously what we see through the eyes. One might get the impression sometimes that there are co- the, the colors are out there. The green I can see, the white, the lilac color of that flower. Um, and I, in here, look out onto that. That is common sense. And it's how we get around and communicate and orient ourselves in the world. But what we have found out through looking at the way in which experience or, let's say, visual perception occurs is that color cannot actually be located. Uh, Neuroscientists don't know where on earth color is. It seems self-evident that the grass is green. But the color green? The color green is not out there. The color green is also not locatable within some neural network somewhere. It's very odd. The same is true of fragrance or smell. We think of fragrance as presumably carried by certain molecules or atoms that come from the, you know, the, bo- the boiling pot of dal we're going to have for lunch. But actually, fragrance is only meaningful as the, as the effect of certain molecules interacting with receptors in the mouth and in the nose that generate what we recognize as the smell of dal. But the smell itself, or the fragrance, can't be found out there, and it can't be found in here. And I think the same is also true when we talk of awareness of consciousness, or something like that. Again, it seems to be a very clear-cut idea. It would seem as though it must correspond to some sort of activity in here. But in fact, it's as elusive and as unpin-downable as color or fragrance. And so whether we follow the way in which the world's revealed to us through the natural sciences, whether we follow the thinking of the the phenomenological school of philosophy, Husserl and Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty and so on, who likewise refuse to assume that experience is in itself divided into subject and object. They start with what Husserl calls uh, the life world. In other words, the world before we split it up into inner, outer, subject, object, here, there. Just the primary field of data. And this seems to be strikingly resonant with the Buddha's analysis of experience into the five bundles. He, and again, as I mentioned yesterday, the, uh, the importance of, this, of these distinctions is not because the Buddha's a kind of proto-scientist trying to pin down exactly what constitutes reality. I don't think he was interested in that. But he was concerned with modeling experience in the way that was most appropriate and um, workable for the particular task he had in mind. And so, in other words, paying attention to the physical world, paying attention to the body, paying attention to the breath, is important because it grounds our experience 
It grounds us in the sensory immediacy of what is taking place. There's something very uh, settling and grounding about that. There's a text in the Majima, number 119, I think, where he says that the person who's not established mindfulness of the body um, is uh, a person who is open to the inroads or the encroaches of Mara. And he gives a number of images which suggest that uh, through grounding one's experience in the uh, embodied uh, awareness we have of ourselves in the world, that gives us a kind of uh, sort of rootedness, a solidity perhaps, that makes us less pervious to attachment, aversion, etc. In other words, the, uh, the forces of Mara. Likewise, the emphasis on feeling is because that's where we tend to get caught up in automatic reactivity, grasping, aversion, whatever it might be. So feeling is crucial because that's the trigger very often for what causes us so much grief and circularity of thinking. Perception is important, perception being the way that we make sense of the world. We identify one thing as opposed to it being another. And that then opens up an awareness of how um, we can make perceptual mistakes we can think of the world as permanent rather than impermanent and so forth and so on and so much of the practice of inquiry of vipassana of investigation is learning to attend to those features of our experience we normally overlook or possibly even ignore or deny so perception is crucial in the arising of wisdom or intelligence or understanding. And then inclination, the fourth of these bundles, has to do with um, the fact that all experience is one in which we find ourselves disposed to do something. We incline towards a certain response to whatever happens. We are primed continuously either to think something or say something or do something. That our experience is never passive. It's always assuming a kind of disposition or posture or stance vis-a-vis what is happening. And that's crucial because that's the source of how we then act morally as agents. We choose to say something or do something that will have consequences not just for ourselves but for others. So we can see in in this breakdown, this parsing of experience, um, the Buddha's providing us with a framework for our overall practice. And the same, of course, can be said for the senses and their objects. It's almost a recapitulation of the same um, broad experience, but now seen in terms of the eyes and the and sights and ears and sounds and so on. Once again, a, a primarily an attempt to configure our experience in terms of our embodied awareness of being here in this world as it rises and vanishes rises and vanishes. Now there are a number of other terms that are more or less synonymous with the five bundles. There's the expression simply um, the world, loka. Uh, The world for the Buddha doesn't mean that world out there that I look at as a kind of disinterested observer. 
But the world includes the totality of events that are passing through at this moment. Um, when the Buddha is asked, what, what do you mean by loka, world? He said, lujati, lujati in Pali, which means it passes, it passes, it, it disintegrates, it disintegrates. So there's a sense that the world is what is constantly moving into the past, constantly vanishing. In French we, we say, um, uh, c'est ce qui se passe, it's what's happening, which literally means what's passing, what's passing by, what's going on. And what's going on is not just what's going on out there, but just as much what's going on, so-called, in here. So in a way, we don't need to uh, think of world, when the Buddha uses that expression, as something external, but as another way of describing experience as a constant vanishing, arising and vanishing. Another expression he uses is the word sabha, which means all or everything. And he describes everything as, once again, he returns to the six sense bases and the six sense objects, our bodily um, organs and what is revealed through them to consciousness. And that he calls everything. What we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and know with our minds. That's the totality. There's nothing beyond that. There's no, some, no transcendent realm of the divine. The, the totality is what we are capable of experiencing here and now. In other words, that's what he's concerned with. Coming to terms with this experience. And even nirvana, which is um, very often thought of as a symbol for the transcendent or what is beyond this world in some way, um, he also describes, and there's a very famous sentence that occurs in the canon where he says, nirvana is immediate, visible here and now, inviting, attractive, comprehensible to the wise. So in other words, the, one of the, the key terms, which is in a way the, uh, the, 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 the key for any genuine transformation in life, nirvana, which we'll come to later, is immediate, visible here and now, inviting, attractive, comprehensible to the wise. In other words, it's something that's a way of um, being in this world, not some way of being in some other realm. It's a perspective, it's an opening, it's grounded, as we saw already, in a certain stopping of very you know, habitual tendencies and habits and inclinations and fears and so on. At moments when that set of inclinations dies down and stops, whether momentarily or for longer periods, that opens up the perspective of nirvana. Now the importance of the uh, five uh, bundles um, again is attested in a number of passages um, and I'm going to cite a few of them, all of them from the Sangyutta Nikaya. Um, we have a passage in Sangyutta Nikaya 22 where the Buddha says that he couldn't consider himself to have attained full awakening until he directly knew how the five bundles came about. So in other words, his awakening too is described not in terms of achieving some insight into some higher truth, 
but in understanding how the bundles come about. And this is the passage I read yesterday where he talks of how um, contact with environment, with an environment, is what triggers simultaneously feeling, perception, and inclination. In other words, we are always already feeling a certain way. The world is always already making sense to us. And the world is always already something that we are inclined to respond to in some way. All of that goes together. And there's another passage which I don't have here uh, where Sariputta, uh, uh, when he's talking to Mahakotita, uh, says that all of these states are conjoined. They're not different things, feelings, perceptions, inclinations. You can't separate them out, he says, that they're all going on at the same time. So in other words, that points to how something like the five bundles is really a kind of framing device. It's a pragmatic model for helping us do something. It's not a description, it's an instruction. In another passage, this is uh, Sanyuta 24, um, he says the person who is known as a stream-enterer is one who has abandoned confusion about the five bundles. That's one of many characteristics of a person who's entered the stream, which is often thought of as the first uh, moment of insight, of, of, of enlightenment even, that brings us onto the Eightfold Path. It has again to do with with understanding, with no longer being confused or muddled about these five bundles. And then, as we'll see later in today's talk, um, the five bundles are equivalent to the first noble truth, dukkha. The text, uh, which I'll read out later, um, concludes in the definition of dukkha, which I'm not going to translate, Um, As in brief, uh, uh, the five clinging bundles are dukkha. We'll come back to that. But in terms of the practice, dukkha is that which is to be fully known, is the word he uses, parinya, which I would perhaps prefer to translate as embraced. In other words, the bundles are to be embraced or fully known. And once again, it raises this idea or this question, what, what, in what sense do we know them? And as we said yesterday, perhaps it's more useful to think of knowing experience, not in a kind of left brain you know, categorization and making some inventory of what's going on, but rather a more holistic um, uh, embrace of our very life that is present to us right now, uh, allowing ourselves to adopt a caring, um, contemplative um, embrace of this flow in the same sort of way that we would know another person or a piece of music or um, a valley or a path or a place. And that I think is crucial, that this knowing, this embracing, um, this understanding how the bundles come about entails a total um, relationship to them that's not just about picking out different elements and getting to gain some insight into them. So if we think of the, 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 the fourth of the four mindfulnesses as, uh, as describing a kind of uh, evolution or development, we go from the mindfulness of the 
bundles or the mindfulness of this total experience passed in a particular way, we then go to the six senses again and their objects, which in some ways is a bit repetitive. And the next phase in the practice is to cultivate what are called the seven factors of awakening, is how they're usually translated, or factors of enlightenment. And this is where we become mindful and attentive of the evolution and the development of our own meditation. The awakening factors seem to be clearly about the uh, process of meditation itself. Um, And they are, I'll list them for you, Uh, the first one is mindfulness itself. So in other words... We, be, we are mindful of being mindful. The second one is um, Dhamma Vichaya, which means the investigation of things, let's say, the investigation of uh, the, you know, the, basically the quality of experience itself. So mindfulness here becomes a basis for being able to look more deeply, more critically, more inquiringly, um, perhaps with a degree of fascination and perplexity into the experience that's unfolding in a given moment. And this is an important quality because mindfulness by itself we might think of just as noting or you know, being aware that something's going on and being more conscious of that. But investigation examination requires a kind of um, engagement with experience that probes it, that seeks to somehow open it up, that starts deliberately noting how everything is changing, how everything is contingent in experience, that there's inevitably a kind of poignant, tragic quality to experience. And also, as we deepen this attention and inquiry, we begin to break down or dissolve the sense that what's going on has anything intrinsically to do with me. It's not really mine. It is, of course, my. this is my body, it's not your body. That's not being disputed. But once you pay attention in this way, in this kind of probing, investigative way, you become more and more attuned and more and more aware of the the impersonality of experience. That there are physical and mental and emotional processes constantly rising and passing. But they're not really you in any deep sense. And such investigation, um, at least the way it's described in the suttas here, um, uh, leads to a kind of enthusiasm. Uh, It's virya, translated as energy or effort. But um, this kind of energy is a sort of um, uh, a joy, really. Um, In Shantideva's text, the Bodhicari Avatara that I mentioned the other day, Uh, He defines um, energy in Tibetan as as gewalatroa, which means finding joy in what is good. Finding joy in what is good. In other words, we find, rather than perhaps cultivate, through the practice moments at which um, there's a, a genuine kind of satisfaction and almost a thrill sometimes at what mindfulness and investigation opens up. Um, Such practice, uh, in a way, gets to a point where it breaks through the kind of opacity, the dullness, the ennui of experience, and suddenly we find what we're experiencing as mind-stopping um, as, as, as infinitely fascinating, uh, as, beyond, as, as we said at the very beginning, 
something sublime. And such energy then gives rise to what is usually translated as rapture. Um, a, a, a well-being that the text describes as not being of this world. Now again, I don't think we need to think of something completely transcendent. But I, what it's pointing to is a sense of, of well-being that's not the sort of well-being that we would look for, say, in gaining some object of desire or enjoying something, um, you know, like a good meal or whatever, but rather a, a sense of well-being, a sense of joy that comes purely from our own uh, changed relationship to our experience itself. There's a sense here of a kind of autonomy that we don't need external stimuli to get a sense of well-being that we find that just being more totally and fully in this experience with the mind still and calm, that in itself brings a certain joy. And I like to think that people come back on retreats or go on longer retreats, because not because it's terribly hard and painful, but because it leads to a very genuine kind of joy. And... Again, in the next, this joy then leads to tranquility or stillness of mind, or is followed by that, at least in this description, which leads us into greater concentration or samadhi, which again at this point could be deepened into what are known as the jhanas. And this then culminates, these seven elements culminate in equanimity. In other words, a, a, a genuine kind of stability, uh, uh, an even-mindedness that is more and more able to initially just note how the mind constantly veers off into wanting, not wanting, liking, not liking, but establishing more and more uh, an equanimous ground of awareness, of concentration, of focus, in which we're less and less uh, thrown off course or rattled or upset. And that, I think, is very crucial. I mean, this is so much, of course, what we're doing on a retreat, whether we're on a group retreat or on a personal retreat. We're really seeking... To, you know, to, to cultivate these qualities. And it's not easy. The mind very often, or perhaps even instinctively, um, wants to do something else. It wants to you know, get some sort of um, distraction or some just lying back in some sort of nicely, vaguely comfortable, lethargic state. But all of these qualities are very much about an enlivening of experience, which is at the same time a stilling and a bringing to focus of experience. And this, then, is followed in the Satipatthana Sutta by the mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths. And the first, of course, is Dukkha, the first truth of dukkha, and that, I feel, is what all of the preceding text has, as it were, built up and prepared ourselves to pay attention to. Again, I don't want to think of these uh, developmental models as somehow purely linear. They start here and they end there. Because as you read these suttas, you notice how all of these categories get reconfigured in different arrangements, which suggests to me very much that um, we're not talking about a strict linear A to Z development, but rather we're talking about a more living process um, that is ongoing, that is open-ended, 
that is constantly, in a sense, being reinforced by these different qualities that we develop and work on. And there's no real kind of final end to it, as I would see it. But this brings us to the question of, um, of what is actually meant by these four noble truths. And as we've already mentioned, um, I have difficulty with this notion of noble truth. It seems to me to introduce a kind of polemical element you know, these, what we are teaching here is both noble and true, uh, and also introducing this ele- the, the, the very concept of truth. Now, one of the um, scholars whose work I find very helpful here is a man called K.R. Norman, who's one of the world's leading experts on Pali and other demotic languages derived from Sanskrit. And he wrote a paper in 1992 called The Four Noble Truths, which was a very philological analysis of the Buddha's first discourse. And this is the conclusion he arrives at. He says, the the earliest form of this sutta did not include the word Arya Satchang, Noble truth. And what he does in in his essay is on grammatical and and syntactical grounds. He shows how the expression noble truth, which occurs right through the text, was interpolated into the text at a later date than its original composition. This was actually noticed even in the 1930s by Woodward, one of the early translators, who was puzzled by the fact the text says the second noble truth should be abandoned. I mean, clearly you're not going to abandon the truth. You need to abandon what the truth, in this case, is pointing to, which is craving. But grammatically, that's an oddity. It doesn't actually make sense. And it shows for Norman how a later interest group has plugged in the word noble truth throughout. Now another um, experiment that I did recently was I went through the um, Sanyutta Nikaya, which is about 1,500 pages of dense text, which I have on my iPad, by the way, (laughs) which means that I can do a, a word search very easily. And I looked... I wanted to see where does the word truth occur? How many times does the word truth occur in the Sanyutta Nikaya? Well, the answer is 503 times. And that includes references in the notes and the indexes and things. But of those 500 times, something like 480 are in the expression noble truth. So let's put that all to one side and see how the word truth is used in other contexts. And in virtually every case, truth is used um, as a moral quality in the sense of telling the truth, or being truthful, being honest. It's a virtue, in other words. The Buddha doesn't emphasize the word truth as somehow the goal of what it is that we're seeking to understand, to practice in in order to understand the truth. That kind of language is actually alien to the canon. Somebody here actually pointed out an exception to that in Majjama 95, which is called the Chanki Sutta. And, And it's true, there the Buddha does say, you know, the practice leads to the discovery of truth and so on, But then you find that truth, that phrase, discovery of truth, is borrowed from his Brahmin interlocutor, the Brahmin priest, who's using that language. And then he adopts it and says, well, what I mean by it is this. But you don't find those expressions elsewhere in the canon. So the Buddha, I don't think, is actually interested in the truth. He's certainly interested in 
speaking truthfully, that's a virtue. In other words, it's something you do, not something you believe in. But I think it's quite at odds with the thrust of his teaching, his pragmatic thrust, to be concerned with uncovering the truth. Another problem um, that makes us think of Buddhism as a truth-searching tradition is the widespread use of the expressions relative truth and ultimate truth, which clearly is very central to a great deal of Buddhist teaching. In all schools, from the Theravadans, the Mahayanists, in Tibetan Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism, you're constantly being told that there are absolute truths or ultimate truths like emptiness or the true nature of mind or something, and then there are just ordinary relative or conventional truths that we use to get by in the world. And that's become so much part of Buddhist discourse that it comes as a bit of a shock when we realize that those terms do not appear even once in the Pali Canon. Nowhere in the suttas, nowhere in the Vinaya, do you find the words absolute and relative truth. The first occurrence in the Pali literature is in the questions of King Mananda, which is a text about 200 years after the Buddha, where you have a monk, Nagasena, in dialogue with a, man, with a king, a Greek king, called Mananda. It's not that these terms don't appear in the Buddha's discourses that's interesting, but that whole way of thinking, I feel, is alien to his approach. He's not interested in passing the world into what's really real and true and what's not. It doesn't seem to be you know, his style, almost. And one reason for that, perhaps, is because He's trying to break with the pre-existent Brahmanic tradition which very much sees the world divided between Brahman, some ultimate reality or ground of being, as opposed to the world of everyday experience which is called Maya, illusion, or it's called Nama Rupa which means like plurality, diversity or prapancha. And I feel that in some ways, perhaps, the Buddha sought to break with that way of thinking and speaking. And hence this, what for us strikes us as strange sometimes, (laughs) this endless breaking up of experience into the five aggregates or the six sense bases or the twelve links or whatever it might be. So, rather than think of Four Noble Truths, I would follow Mr. Norman and also, I guess, my own predilections and would speak instead of the Four without Noble Truth attached. The Four, which, if we were to tease it out a little more, I think we could call the four noble tasks, or simply the four tasks. And this is quite explicit um, in the Buddha's own uh, teaching in the first discourse. And I'm going to read that out. I'm going to read out what the four are, how the Buddha defines them, and then how they should be acted upon, and then the conclusion that the Buddha draws from that. So this is the text itself. Um, This is dukkha. Dukkha is the first of the four. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear is dukkha. Separation from what is dear is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. In brief, the five bundles of clinging are dukkha. 
This is the arising. This is the second. There are four terms, basically. Dukkha, arising, ceasing, and path. That's the most economical way the tradition um, represents these four. Dukkha, the arising, which is samudaya, ceasing, niroda, and path, magga. And I'm just going to keep it as minimalist as possible and just focus on those four terms. So this is the arising. It is craving, which is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. This is what the Buddha calls the arising. And my own understanding of this is that craving is what arises from our encounter with the world, with dukkha, with the five bundles. That triggers craving. Craving is what, in colloquial English we'd say, is what comes up. It's what happens on our encounter with the world. That is our kind of default instinctive reaction. And then the third of the fourth is ceasing. This is ceasing, the Buddha says, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. This, I feel, is, is very important. This is the definition of nirvana, essentially. Nirvana is the fading away and cessation of craving. In other words, it's the ceasing of what arises. Craving arises, but, and this is the crucial thing, it can also stop. And it's in that stopping, the fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it, that opens up the experience of nirvana, which is immediate, visible here and now, comprehensible to the wise, etc. And finally, the fourth of the four, and this is the path. The path with eight branches, right vision, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. In other words, the Eightfold Path, the middle way. So in the first discourse, the Buddha defines each of the four in the terms that I've just stated. And then he follows by describing how we should or could relate to those four. And each one is to be related to in a different way. This is what the text says, abbreviated. Such is dukkha. It can be fully known. It can be embraced. It has been fully known. It has been embraced. Such is the arising. In other words, such is the arising of craving. It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is the ceasing. It can be experienced. The word in Pali means something like seen with your own eyes. It can be experienced and it has been experienced. Remember the ceasing or the stopping of craving. Not the ceasing or the cessation of dukkha. That I feel is misleading here. And finally, such is the path, it can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. And then he says, There arose in me illumination, 
about things previously unknown. In other words, this is something completely new, in a way. As far as he was aware, nobody had ever quite seen the world in this way before, or seen experience from this perspective. And he continues, As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of these four, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. This, I feel, is probably the most explicit and clear account of what enlightenment means. I don't... I prefer to use the word awakening. It's closer to the original sense, but enlightenment will do just as well. But here it becomes uh, uh, quite evident that awakening does not refer to gaining a certain kind of mystical or uh, uh, non-ordinary consciousness of some higher truth, some ultimate reality. That language is quite alien to this text. Instead, awakening is seen as the recognition the performance and the accomplishment of four tasks. And those four tasks are embracing dukkha, which means embracing experience in its totality. It has to do with letting go of what arises, the grasping, the craving, the aversion, the fear, allowing that just to rise and pass away experiencing the cessation or the stopping of that arising and then that opening up the possibility of living and responding in a different way. Living in this world, responding to the experience we're having from a perspective that is not conditioned by craving by greed, by hatred, and so on, which is sometimes called the unconditioned. The unconditioned doesn't refer to some kind of state. It refers to um, the experience we have of not being conditioned by greed or hatred or confusion. So it's the falling away of certain deeply-seated inclinations or instincts that prompt us to react in a very predictable way. So the process of awakening is the process of of, of engaging with the world in such a way that these um, four tasks begin to become more and more what we do, at least at a kind of a deep level, not necessarily... You know, we can recognize them in any specific acts. In other words, these four provide us with a, with a template uh, for living, a template in which, in each moment, we are open to the possibility of embracing whatever is occurring. And again, I think the embracing of dukkha is pretty much synonymous with yoniso manasikara, radical attention or deep attention to what's occurring. In each moment we are alert to what comes up, arises in our encounter with experience, and rather than, as it were, letting it carry us off into some fear or to some fantasy or whatever, we just experience its rising And we also allow ourselves the stillness and the equanimity to experience its ceasing. 
because it'll cease anyway. Uh, the very nature of something that arises is to cease. And in fact, at the very conclusion of the first discourse, um, one of the five ascetics, Kondanya, understands what the Buddha has said. And as an expression of his insight into the four, he says, whatever arises ceases. Yam kinchi samudayang dhammang tam sabang nirodam dhammang. Whatever is an arising thing, that is a ceasing thing. And that becomes a kind of a slogan in the early community. When Sariputta first hears secondhand what the Buddha teaches, his first response is, ah, so whatever arises ceases. With a, I imagine, a kind of a astonishment. Wow. So obvious, but so difficult to do. And it's, the, in, it's in the ceasing, in the stopping of that reactivity, that other possibilities open up. And so in this sense, I feel that the four describe once again an evolution, a development. That the fully knowing of dukkha, the embracing of the totality of experience from this mindful, equanimous, still, concentrated state. That's, that, that, that's the key. Once we start to do that, our relationship to the world begins to change. The pettiness... Uh, maybe the, even the absurdity of craving. In other words, this idea that we probably don't quite admit to ourselves, that if only I could just get it right, if only I could organize the world so that it suited me, then I'd be happy. But of course, you know, we spend a lot of our lives trying to do that. And um, the reason we might be on this retreat is because we're beginning to realize it doesn't work. <laughs> that it's kind of endless and endlessly frustrating. So we look for some other way at a very deep level of how to, as it were, um, deal with or work with this experience called life. And that's really, I think, what this model is giving us is a framework for living. But it's very challenging because it goes against some of the most deeply embedded instincts and and beliefs that we might have. Probably, you know, instantiated through millions of years of evolution or hundreds of years of civilization, whatever it might be. So, in my understanding, the, the four culminate in the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path culminates in mindfulness and concentration which brings us back to the seven factors of enlightenment, which precede the mindfulness of the four tasks. And so again, you get this, not circularity exactly, but a kind of feedback loop, a positive feedback loop. That seems to be what's uh, distinctive about all these different kind of lists and things which at first sight can feel so confusing is that they're different sort of idea clusters, practice clusters, that uh, feed into each other, providing us with a kind of a matrix um, for uh, working uh, in any given situation in life. And these can be summarized, and we'll, I'll, I'll go on more tomorrow as to tease this out, um, in what I've rather cheekily called ELSA. And ELSA is an acronym, embrace, let go, stop, and act. Embrace dukkha, let go of craving, stop craving, act. In other words, the goal, if we can speak of goals here, 
is not nirvana. But it is what nirvana opens up for us as a new possibility of acting in the world. And that, of course, is um, a secular reading of the text. It's not traditional. In fact, it's probably considered by some Buddhists heretical. But um, I feel that it provides us on the basis of a fairly close reading of primary canonical materials to arrive at a consistent and a coherent uh, vision of the practice of the Dharma that is rooted very much in this seculum or this world. So I'll continue with the teasing out of the implications of this interpretation tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.